0: But enough about me. At age 33, not long after finding Livingstone, Stanley found love. He had always considered himself hopeless with women, but his new celebrity increased his social opportunities when he returned to London, and there he met a visiting American named Alice Pike. She was just 17, half his age, and he noted in his diary that she was very ignorant of African geography and I fear of everything else. But he was smitten, and within a month they were engaged. They agreed to marry once Stanley returned from his next African expedition. He set off from the east coast of Africa carrying her photograph wrapped in oilskin next to his heart, while his men lugged the pieces of a 24-foot boat named the Lady Alice, which Stanley used to make the first recorded circumnavigations of the Great Lakes in the heart of Africa. Then, having traveled 3,500 miles, Stanley continued westward for the most dangerous part of the trip. He planned to take the Lady Alice down the Lualaba River to wherever it led, maybe the Nile, Livingstone's theory, and maybe the Niger, maybe the Congo, Stanley's hunch, which would prove correct. No one knew, because even the fearsome Arab slave traders had been intimidated by tales of bellicose cannibals downstream. Before heading down that river, Stanley wrote to his fiancée, telling her that he weighed just 118 pounds, having lost 60 pounds since seeing her. His many ailments included another bout of malaria, which had him shivering on a day when the temperature in the sun hit 138 degrees Fahrenheit. He expected worse hardships ahead, but he didn't focus on them in the last letter he would be able to dispatch until reaching the other side of Africa. My love toward you is unchanged. You are my dream, my stay, my hope, and my beacon, he wrote to her. I shall cherish you in this light until I meet you, or death meets me. Stanley clung to that hope for another 3,500 miles, taking the Lady Alice down the Congo River, surviving attacks from cannibals, chanting a war cry of Niyama, "Nyama, Niyama, meet, meet. Only half of his companions completed the journey to the Atlantic coast, which took nearly three years and claimed the life of every European except Stanley. Upon reaching civilization, Stanley eagerly sought love letters from his fiancée, but instead he got a note from his publisher with some awkward news and dubious use of the exclamation point. I now come to a delicate subject, which I have long debated with myself whether I should write about or wait for your arrival. I think, however, I may as well tell you at once that your friend Alice Pike is married. Stanley was distraught to hear that his dream woman had abandoned him for the son of a railroad car manufacturer in Ohio. And he was hardly mollified by a note from her congratulating him for the expedition while breezily mentioning her marriage and acknowledging that the Lady Alice had proved a truer friend than the Alice she was named after. To Stanley the engagement was further proof of his romantic ineptitude. He had obviously crossed Africa with the wrong woman's photograph next to his heart. But however badly it turned out, Stanley did get something out of the relationship and that photograph. A distraction from his own wretchedness. He may have fooled himself about her loyalty, but he was smart during his journey to fixate on a stay and a beacon far removed from his grim surroundings. It was a more elaborate version of the successful strategy used by the children in the classic marshmallow experiment. Those who kept looking at the marshmallow quickly depleted their willpower and gave in to the temptation to eat it right away. Those who distracted themselves by looking around the room or sometimes just covering their eyes managed to hold out. Similarly, paramedics distract patients from their pain by talking to them about anything except their condition and midwives try to keep women in labor from closing their eyes, which would enable them to focus on the pain. They recognized the benefits of what Stanley called self-forgetfulness. He blamed the breakdown of the rear column on their leader's decision to stay put in camp so long, waiting and waiting for additional porters, instead of setting out sooner into the jungle on their own journey. The cure of their misgivings and doubts would have been found in action, he wrote rather than enduring deadly monotony. As horrible as it was for Stanley going through the forest with sick, famished, and dying men, their journey's endless occupations were too absorbing and interesting to allow room for baser thoughts. Stanley saw the work as a mental escape. For my protection against despair and madness, I had to resort to self-forgetfulness, to the interest which my task brought. I had my reward in knowing that my comrades were all the time conscious that I did my best, and that I was bound to them by a common sympathy and aims. This encouraged me to give myself up to all neighborly offices, and was morally fortifying. This talk of common sympathy in neighborly offices may sound suspiciously self-serving, coming from some with Stanley's reputation for aloofness and severity. After all, this was the man renowned for the coldest greeting in history. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Even Victorians found it ridiculously stiff for two Englishmen meeting in the middle of Africa. But what's most revealing about the famous line, according to Gill, is that Stanley never uttered it. The first record of it occurs in Stanley's dispatch to the New York Herald, written well after the meeting. It's not in the diaries of either man. Stanley tore out the crucial page of his diary, cutting off his account of the encounter just as they were about to greet each other. Stanley, chronically insecure about his workhouse roots, apparently invented the line afterward to make himself sound dignified. He always admired the stiff, upper lip credo of British gentleman explorers, and he sometimes tried to mimic their sang froid by affecting a dispassionate air toward his adventures. But he lacked their flair and their discretion. While they omitted or downplayed the violent encounters and disciplinary tactics on their African expeditions, Stanley vastly exaggerated those aspects, partly to sound tougher, partly to sell newspapers and books. As a result, Stanley ended up with a reputation as the harshest and most violent explorer of his age, when in fact he was unusually humane toward Africans, even by comparison with the gentle Livingston as Geel demonstrates. For his time, Stanley was remarkably free of racial prejudice. He spoke Swahili fluently and established lifelong bonds with his African companions. He severely disciplined white officers who mistreated blacks under their command, and he continually restrained his men from violence and other crimes against local villagers. While he did sometimes get in fights when negotiations and gifts failed, The image of Stanley shooting his way across Africa was a myth. The secret to his success lay not in the battles he described so vividly, but in two principles that Stanley summarized after his last expedition. I have learnt, by actual stress of imminent danger, in the first place, that self-control is more indispensable than gunpowder, and in the second place, that persistent self-control, under the provocation of African travel, is impossible without real, heartfelt sympathy for the natives with whom one has to deal. As Stanley realized, self-control is not selfish. Willpower enables us to get along with others and override impulses that are based on personal short-term interests. It's the same lesson that Navy SEAL commandos learn during a modern version of Stanley's ordeals the famous Hell Week test of continual running, swimming, crawling, and shivering that they must endure on less than five hours' sleep. At least three-quarters of the men in each SEAL class typically fail to complete training, and the survivors aren't necessarily the ones with the most muscles, according to Eric Greitens, a SEAL officer. In recalling the fellow survivors of his Hell Week, he points out their one common quality. They had the ability to step outside of their own pain, put aside their own fear and ask, how can I help the guy next to me? They had more than the fist of courage and physical strength. They also had a heart large enough to think about others. Throughout history, the most common way to redirect people away from selfish behavior has been through religious teachings and commandments, and these remain an effective strategy for self-control, as demonstrated by research that we'll discuss later. But what if, like Stanley, you're not a believer? After losing his faith in God and religion at an early age, a loss he attributed to the slaughter he witnessed in the American Civil War, he faced a question that vexed other Victorians. How can people remain moral without the traditional restraints of religion? Many prominent non-believers, like Stanley, responded by paying lip service in public to religion while also looking for secular ways to inculcate a sense of duty. During the awful trek through the Aturi jungle, he exhorted the men by quoting one of his favorite couplets from Tennyson's Ode on the Death of the Duke of Wellington. Not once or twice in our fair island story, the path of duty was the way to glory. Stanley's men didn't always appreciate his efforts. The Tennyson lines got very old for some of them. But his approach embodied a correct principle of self-control. Focus on Lofty Thoughts The effects of this strategy were recently tested by a team of researchers headed by Kentaro Fujita of New York University and his thesis advisor, Yakov Trope. They used a series of methods to move people's mental processes to either high or low levels. High levels were defined by abstraction and long-term goals. Low levels were the opposite. For instance, people were asked to reflect either on why they did something or on how they did something. Why questions push the mind up to higher levels of thinking and focus on the future. How questions bring the mind down to low levels of thinking and a focus on the present. Another procedure that produced similar results was to have people move up or down from a given concept, like the word singer. To induce a high-level mindset, people were asked, a singer is an example of what? In contrast, to induce a low-level mindset, they were asked, what is an example of a singer? Thus, the answer pushed them to think either more globally or more specifically. These manipulations of mental state had no inherent relation to self-control, yet self-control approved among people who were encouraged to think in high-level terms and got worse among those who thought in low-level terms. Different measures were used in assorted experiments, but the results were consistent. After engaging in high level thinking, people were more likely to pass up a quick reward for something better in the future. When asked to squeeze a hand grip, they could hold on longer. The results showed that a narrow, concrete, here and now focus works against self control, whereas a broad, abstract, long term focus supports it. That's one reason why religious people score relatively high in measures of self-control and why non-religious people like Stanley can benefit by other kinds of transcendent thoughts and enduring ideals. Stanley always combined his ambitions for personal glory with a desire to be good, as he'd imagined his dying mother telling him. He found his calling along with Livingston when he saw firsthand the devastation being wrought by the expanding network of Arab and East African slave traders. From then on, he considered it his life's mission to end the slave trade. Ultimately, what sustained Stanley through the jungle and through the rejections from his family and his fiancée and the British establishment was his stated belief that he was engaged in a sacred task. By modern standards, he can seem bombastically pious, but he was sincere. I was not sent into the world to be happy, he wrote, I was sent for special work." During his descent to the Congo, he would earnestly write himself exhortations like, I hate evil and love good. At the worst point along the river, when he was despondent over the drowning of two of his closest companions, when he was close to dying himself from starvation and there seemed no prospect of finding food, he consoled himself with the loftiest thought he could summon. This poor body of mine has suffered terribly. It has been degraded, pained, wearied, and sickened, and is well nigh sunk under the task imposed on it. But this was but a small portion of myself, for my real self lay darkly encased and was ever too haughty and soaring for such miserable environments as the body that encumbered it daily. Was Stanley, in his moment of despair, succumbing to religion? And imagining himself with the soul? Maybe. But given his lifelong struggles, given all his stratagems to conserve his powers in the wilderness, it seems likely that he had something more secular in mind. His real self, as Bula Matari saw it, was his will.